The following is from the teaching ministry of First Baptist Church of Royal City, Washington. More teaching like this can be found at graceteaching.net or searching Grace-Oriented Teaching wherever you get your podcasts. Now, here is our speaker. Be thankful for the privilege of being able to get together, of assembling this way, and assembling freely. Uh, We're free, first of all and foremost, because your son has through his death on the cross, freed us from the dominion of our sinful nature, freed us from the dominion this world system wants to have over us, that we can actually not let it dictate everything that we have to do, and uh, freed us from from Satan's dominion, and uh, that we can actually enjoy and experience that freedom. And we're thankful for that first and foremost, because there are people that have lived in free countries but don't know any of that freedom. We're also thankful for the freedom that you allow us to have in this nation, and for those that have gone before that have uh, put certain things in place to try to do their best to safeguard this freedom. But we realize ultimately even that is something that is in your hands and why you've chosen that we in this short period of time in human history would get to enjoy this freedom. I don't know, but we thank you for it and we appreciate it. It's part of your plan and design. But help us to not take that for granted, but that we would use it to be those who are bold testimonies and those who are not, uh, as Jim was even sharing with us, giving thanks and praise to you for making it possible that things had come together in a right way to deal with a flat tire, which might seem like a small thing, but when we don't have everything we need, it can be a big problem. And... uh, and to be able to praise and openly say, hey, I give you credit for that. And not just to say, hey, everything worked out, I was lucky. But to actually realize that you are the God that, that cares in all of these things. And to not be afraid to share that and to say those things as we're out uh, here in the world with people that don't think like we do. Uh, and uh, so we would ask that uh, those people that govern us, that they would continue to do so in a manner that would guard the freedoms that we've had, these uh, political freedoms, freedoms to speak openly, and then that we would uh, live a life that reflects uh, a real confidence in you ultimately, not in the world, not in the government. And uh, thank you for those abilities. And uh, we think of those that aren't with us today. We know wherever they are, as always, that they are in your care. And we ask that they might be encouraged to think about that wherever they are. And for those of us that are here today, that we would be remembering that getting together with saints at church, doing church, whatever we might call it, is about, it's about a lot more than singing a couple songs and listening to a Bible study. Yeah, it is about ministering to, to other believers, and we ask that you might help us as we uh, uh, in, interact with other people here, that we would be thinking how you might use us in their lives, because that's your plan and design uh, for the body of Christ. And uh, uh, with all of that, we also want to remember our brother Daryl as he continued to deal with uh, problems in, in his back and hip. And we just uh, asked for relief for him and realized that there's uh, quite a few that are dealing with different aches and pains and such and other challenges in their lives. And uh, again, for all of us, whatever we might be facing, whether they're outside things or whether they're things with our bodies, whatever it might be, that we would be finding your grace to be enough to take us through those things so that your power might be seen in our weakness. And we would thank you for that then. Amen. So in Titus chapter 2, we have been looking for the last two weeks at 
um, instructions that uh, Paul gave to Titus that he was in, in turn to pass on to uh, five different groups of individuals in the church. The older men, the older women, then the younger women we're going to look at today, and perhaps the younger men. We will see where the clock takes us at that juncture. And then lastly, slaves. And as he's giving these instructions to Titus, it is also important for us to understand that as he gives these to Titus, he is also in indicating that the elders that he gave instructions for in what we know as chapter 1, that those elders were responsible for this. So this would fall on my shoulders. This would fall on others that in that, in that position, that part of our responsibility, our responsibility is not just teaching. It's real easy, pastor teachers, that we think our first and foremost thing, and the only thing we do is really teach. So I study and teach and study and teach and study and teach. But there's other things that we're involved in doing, and some of those are encouraging people in the church in terms of their activities, things that they're, that they're involved in, and helping them understand what God wants <laughs> in their life. And uh, that happens by interacting with them, by getting to know them. If we hold them at arm's length and we don't interact, then we don't know what other people are doing, dealing with, and we don't know what they, what they need at a moment in time. And so and these are some of the things that he's been encouraging them to do. We're going to go, we're going to pick up at the end of the older women because there's a statement that's made uh, about the older women. And so let's go to verse 3 and read what he says about the older women again. It says, the older women then likewise are to be in a, uh, a reverent behavior, and that word reverent behavior means like it's a, it's a kind of a conduct fit for the temple. And what was that temple? What was that temple that we were talking about? The body of Christ. We're the temple. See, they would have used that for the kind of decorum a person might have going up to maybe the Jewish temple or because these were Cretans at their, the temples of their false gods. And they had a certain kind of a decorum, but the decorum that, that Paul is talking about is a decorum for being together with other believers as part of the, the body of Christ. And it says, uh, and not malicious gossips, or not slanders, not enslaved to much wine. And then at the end of verse 3, teaching what is good. And we, we talked about this last week, and this is going to be important for where we're going, because that word, teaching what is good, is I, I put up there, and I called teachers... They should be teachers of beauty, which doesn't mean they're going to sit down and they're going to explain, this is how you fix your hair, this is how you put makeup on. This is. So I want to, I want to go out of this for a minute, and I, want to, I just want to pull this up. This is, uh, this is my Bible program here, and I want you to kind of take a look. And here's this instruction to, this is our word for older women. And at the end of this, this is our word, um, you can see that word that's highlighted up there, you can't read Greek, but that's okay. But it's this word, kalodidaskalus, uh, which is good teachers or beauty teachers. Okay, that's what we have here. And I pulled up over here on the side, kalos, this adjective that's attached to the word teacher, kalos. And, and uh, if we look down here, when we look at it, it in the Septuagint in the Old Testament, it, it chiefly is for the word yefa which is the word beautiful, but much more often it's even for tov, which is beautiful. <laughs> it's beautiful in that way. And the Greeks have said, they applied it, and I've tried to highlight these, everything so distinguished in form, excellence, goodness, and usefulness as to be pleasing. So this is what this word meant, kalos. 
And we can take it, because it was used of physical beauty, but as we were pointing out last week, the thing that's more important than physical beauty are anything else that is excellent and good. And so we looked at some examples over in 1 Timothy chapter 2 last week, where it talks about the fact that it's the inner person, it's that inner character. That's the real beauty. Okay? That's the real beauty. And I've always said this. I didn't, I didn't start dating Peggy going, oh man, she looks really ugly. She must be a great Christian gal. No, I was struck by the fact that I thought she was very pretty. Okay? Very honest. That caught my attention. But you know what? It's as I got to know her. Because there were other girls that I had known. There were other girls I'd gone out on dates with. They were like, oh, they're really pretty. And you go out with them going, I'm not really interested in spending time with this person because I don't particularly care for their character. They are selfish people. They are selfish people. And they're greedy. And that was not interesting to me. Peg was very concerned about other people. She Anyway, I don't need to go through and rehearse all her great characteristics, things that I appreciated. But it was those things... It was those things that God convinced me that this was somebody that I was that I was really interested in pursuing. Okay, and apparently she was interested in pursuing me too because she stuck with me. So that aside, we'll come back to this idea that they're teachers of beauty. And as we said, that is a beauty of character. And that brings us then, when we come here uh, to verse 4, Titus 2 and verse 4, that they may encourage, this is a numerical standard, that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. Okay, And this word that is translated encourage in this text is a word meaning to encourage or to cause a saved frame of mind, a saved attitude, a sensible attitude. It is a word I could go back and I could have pulled up my, the Greek thing again and showed you this, but it has an ending on it. An ending in the Greek that is idzo, I-D-Z-O, long O. And that is a causative ending. So there, there, the older women are trying to cause or encourage or promote an attitude that is sensible, which again was one of the things I really liked about my wife. Because I remember, we'd go in, I'm, I'm sorry, I just, to me this was sensible. This is me, you may disagree, that's fine, this was one of my standards. But I dated other girls that say, hey, we're going to go, I'll come by and get you at this time. And then you get there and they're like, I'll be ready in about five. Five meant about 20, because they were still doing all this stuff. And I'm like, I don't care about all this stuff. I'm not care that, you know, and that was one of the things... I'd stop over to Peg's room and I said, hey, we're ready to go. And Peg's like, just a second, step in front of the mirror. Yeah, okay, let's go. And I was like, wow, <laughs> she's not vain. She's not constantly thinking about, is everything just perfect? Unless she was doing that before I got there, but I don't think she was. So I've <laughs> been married to her long enough. I know that that's not high on her priority. And I looked at that, for me personally, I looked at that as sensible. Because she realized that there were more important things in life than just, do I look stunning? I was like, oh, I always thought so. But she's not there trying to impress everybody else by how well her hair is fixed and her makeup's on and the clothes. <laughs> I would never have ever thought that. But anyway, that aside, this is what the older women are supposed to be doing. And I think that this is an important thing, that the older women are to be encouraging then, causing a saved or a sensible frame of mind. Now, I would say part of that sensible frame of mind, and we talked about this last week, 
because we've this is not the first time we've come across this word sensible frame of mind or saved frame of mind. We, we, We've covered it other times here in the book of Titus and looked at it in another passage, but a sensible frame of mind is one that involves salvation. And the Greeks used it of, hey, if you want to live a life that's safe, there are certain things that are moderate and make sense. So that's the way the Greeks looked at it. For us, we look at it in terms of what is what contributes to my spiritual salvation. We have a whole other element. I don't think that the Greek element completely falls away from in this word, but I think because we have salvation on another level that we have a whole other aspect of things to think about. And he says the older women should be encouraging that kind of an attitude in the younger women. Okay? So, with that, let's go and look at the two specific things they say immediately following this. It says that they ought to, uh, to love their husbands and to love their children. And both of these are not the word agapao. Popular, we usually say agape, but that's the noun. They're not agapao. They're not the verb love, but it's the word phileo. And it's actually attached to these words as an adjective. They're fond of husband ones, fond of children ones. So it's all one word. Fond of husband, fond of children is the way it is functioning this way. In other words, um, I, I, you, you, you people probably never ever said this to your children, because we always made sure our children knew that we loved them. But our children sometimes when they were growing up were not always cooperative and sometimes could be, you know, and <laughs> sometimes you could say, I love you, but I don't like you right now. <laughs> I don't know if anybody else ever told your kids that, but it's not like, Hey, I love you, and your behavior's just okay. Or that behavior, no, you're like, I don't like that behavior. I don't like you right now. And this idea with this philos at the beginning is you can actually come to be fond of husbands and fond of children. Well, let me ask you a question. Why in the world, why in the world would a woman marry a man and not be fond of him? What? She didn't, why would, why would a woman marry somebody she doesn't know? Because there were a lot of arranged marriages. All you young people in here, think about that. You don't get to go out there and have a guy come as a suitor, show up with flowers at your I don't know that they even do that. Or you guys show up with flowers at the door and go, hey, hey, I'm here to pick you up for a date. I'd like to ask you out. You know, it wasn't any of that kind of stuff. It's that your mom and dad, perhaps when you were kids, or maybe when you're eight, said, hey, I got a daughter. You got a son. How about we set this up? And there was an exchange of money or property and all of this. And it was a big deal in their world. We, don't, we haven't done that in our nation for a, for a long time. I'm not saying it doesn't go on in our nation, but it's not normal. So that's part of it. Let me ask you another one, though. And my wife can't answer this question. <laughs> Do you ever marry somebody and you are in love with them and fond of them? But after a while, you're like, you, who are you? I did, I, this is what my, I think I've heard uh, women say this before. I didn't marry you to be your housemaid. I didn't be, I didn't marry you to pick up after you so you could be a slob and I keep your life cleaned up. And yet you just seem to think that that's all I'm here to do. And you just take advantage of that. That happens. Or sometimes, you know, it's just like, 
man, you're just rude. Where were this is not the guy I met when we were dating that you were sweet and, and fond over me. Now you're just kind of like, you expect me to do this and that. And does that ever happen? <laughs> it happens. I, I don't want to lump all you in with me, but guys, it happens to the best of us that we sometimes come short in that. So we got a couple of scenarios in which, yeah. And we change as we grow. Oh yeah. Yeah. So so you know I would like to think things are better, but you know, sometimes as things get older, the things that you used to do become harder and more difficult. And it's just not as easy. There is a reason when you get married that you say in those lines, for better or worse, for richer or poor, in sickness and in health. Because you know what? You know, when you say those things and you're 21, Peg and I were 21 when we got married, you say those things and you think, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know what? Time goes on and you find out some of those things are true. <laughs> you're like, wow. You know, sickness and in health. And you go through those things. And so... One of the things that sometimes I believe that this is important, this is where the older women can come in to kind of help encourage the younger women. This is, this, is how you, this is how you do this. This is how you can go through this and actually be fond of this person, fond of this guy. Okay, let's go to the next one. Fond of their children. Believe it or not, and I've had people that are shocked to say this when you say this, and... and, uh, and uh, well, one of the people that was most shocked, they're not here anymore, but I remember they were like, what? When I said, not all women love kids, and this, this person was like, what? All women love babies. And I'm like, mm, no, I've known women that they don't like kids. <laughs> they don't like them. <laughs> no. Some of you might go, well, something's wrong with them. I'm just saying not everybody's wired the same, right? In fact, I've known some families that where the kids will say, you know what? Mom and dad both did their job. They both showed us attention, but dad was the one that was fun and really showed attention with us, and mom was the heavy-handed one. And some families, it's the other way around. Mom's the fun one, and dad's the heavy-handed one. Very seldom is it both of them. It usually kind of seems like one or the other. But there are people that they get married, and normal product of marriage normally is children. And some women have children, and, they're, and some women are excited. Oh, I'm going to have a child, and then they get a child, and they found nobody, seriously, and this is, even, I think, even crazier today, but nobody told me that having a kid was going to be this much work. Has <laughs> anybody, anybody ever shocked by how much work children actually were when you had them? I mean, you knew they were going to be work, but when you actually have them, you're like, wow, they're, they're way more demanding than I ever realized. You're... you're keeping somebody alive. <laughs> and all of that together, those older women who have been married a while, those older women whose kids are probably flown the coop, they're out the door, they can be helping encourage the younger women to have a saved frame of mind, an attitude that thinks about their salvation so that they can even like the kids. <laughs> so that they can even like the kids. To me, it's really interesting that Paul, as he's talking to Titus and giving these instructions to Titus that are going to be passed on to the pastor teachers, the elders in the church, he doesn't say elders go and tell the younger women how to do this. He says, you need to be talking to the older women. And by the way, when Paul talks to Timothy about this, do you remember what Timothy says? How do you relate to the older women in the church? Relate to them as... 
as mothers. Relate to them as mothers. And the younger women as sisters. But he doesn't say, Timothy, go off to the younger women now and train them how to live in this way. You're going to train them generally in terms of the Christian life when you're together. But he's going to say, it's you are, from what we had back up in verse 3, you're going to be dealing with the older women. The older women, their responsibility primarily is to be helping, encouraging these kind of things in the younger women. So the pastor in the church does this indirectly through the older women. Does everybody get that? They're doing that indirectly through the young. They don't go over and say, we're going to sit down, I'm going to have a Bible study with you, I'm going to tell you how to be a better wife, how to be a better mom. They do that in this setting, but they also are going to be doing that with the older women so that the older women then can in turn take and impart what they have learned about the Christian life and how it works and how, what is a Christian, because this is one of the questions that we always ask. What does a Christian life look like? Feet on the ground. Right? In fact, Jim's going over um, uh, uh, Satan's methods right now. And uh, uh, I have a friend, uh, Steve Thomas, down in Pensacola, Florida. He's going to the Bible conference over in Titusville, where Kevin Jeffries pastors this next weekend. And he wrote a paper on, uh, I think I don't remember exactly, but it's like Peter has a case study on satanic attack. Because we know that Peter went through a satanic attack. And so he goes through all these things that you see Peter doing in that process from the time of that attack up until after, sometime after the resurrection when Peter apparently gets straightened out. And you see all these things that Peter does. And it's a really good illustration of Christian life, feet on the ground. And what is what are these two issues here? Christian life, safe frame of mind. Feet on the ground. This is how these women say, yeah, you know, sometimes I find I have to put on the armor of God ten times a day because of him. <laughs> well, my wife has to live with me, and so I'm not pointing my finger at you. I'm pointing it at me. I don't know what any of you guys, what picture you have of what my life is with my wife, but I can guarantee you I am sometimes a burr under her saddle and a probably a pain in her neck with some things uh, like that. Hopefully not all the time, <laughs> but uh, I just, I'm just telling you, I think that this is true. All of us, we go through these kind of things, and this is what they're supposed to be doing. Then it goes on from there, as he's talking about this attitude, and it says in verse 4, and that, again, specifically, and that they should have a safe frame of mind. Now he just actually uses the word for a safe frame of mind. I, again, the very fact that he keeps bringing this word up is just a reminder Going back to chapter 1, the fact that you've got these people that mislead, that misteach the Old Testament, and they, they, they aren't teaching the people what they should, and they're messing this stuff up, and it's unbelievers and believers alike that are doing this, that, Peter, that, excuse me, that Paul is encouraging the, the Titus and the elders that they need to really be teaching about salvation and reminding people how to have a safe frame of mind. This is why I don't apologize for the fact that I'm going to take you back again and again and again and again to what the Bible says about who you are in Christ. I am very thankful 
for the teachers in her church because I learned things from them. And one of the ones things that I've learned that's really stuck in my mind over the last few months was the verse, 1 Corinthians 4.17 that Josh has shared several times as he continues to go over our position in Christ on Sunday afternoons where Paul says that you might know my ways that are in Christ. I'm probably misquoting the verse that I speak in every church, every place. I, share, I got to share that with a, with a believer that needed to be reminded of that just this last week. That they needed to be reminded. That is foundational. And I'm not going to hesitate to continue to remind us of that. Because that is, that is the foundation that begins to give us a saved frame of mind. For you to know who you are in Christ. And all of us need it. As older men, as older women, as the younger women. And the younger men eventually and then even it's going to talk about the slaves. Secondly, he goes on there in verse 5, and he says, then they ought to be pure. And I don't think this is a hard thing. I don't think that this is a hard thing to understand. This is a word that um, Paul uses with regard to Timothy. He says that when you're dealing with the women in the church, he says when you're dealing with those younger women, you deal with them in all purity. Indicating it is really easy in a church situation, for people to look at each other in a manner that's not appropriate in that relationship. And as he's looking at this, and he's talking about this, and I've gone over the word, tried to see is there some other notions that are involved in this word. But it, it, it's a form of the word, it's a form of a word for cleanliness. It's not the katharos word that we've talked about that my daughter's named after. This is hagnos word, and it means pure. And so he says, they, they, they need to, they need to uh, and I believe that this is going back to what the older women are doing, they're, they're really going to be teaching them, I keep losing my place here in verse 5, to teach them how to be pure. And again, I don't, that doesn't mean how to wash their hands, wash their face. I believe he's talking about a way of, a way of living your life. And I think all of us understand this. When we're talking about purity in terms of our relationships with other people, it starts here, doesn't it? It starts here in our mind. It starts with the way we learn to think about people. Because if we think, well, it doesn't hurt for me to think like this about those people. Because you, you've heard, I've heard guys say that, you know, well, I'm married, so I'm not buying, but I can window shop. Baloney, that's misusing the mind. It's misusing the mind. And by the way, young people, even when you're not married, it's easy for us to think, oh, you know, you know what? If you train yourself to start looking at other people, looking especially at people of the opposite sex with that kind of an attitude, pretty soon that sets, sets you up that that's the only way you think about those kind of people. And that's a bad way to enter into a relationship is that you're thinking of them in those terms, Right? Because there's a lot more to a relationship than just physical relationship. There's a lot more that goes into a relationship than just the physical side of it. And so he says, sensible and pure. Then we come to the next one. You women are supposed to be dusting, scrubbing floors, because it says you're supposed to be houseworkers. And when I grew up, I don't, we, we didn't hardly even use this word. This is not even a word you hardly even hear in modern language. 
But if you look back in the 50s and the 60s, and my mom used to get um, Better Homes and Gardens and things like that, and you'd have those magazines, Family Circle and Woman's Day, and you'd open those things, and they'd have things on, hey, how to clean the floors, how to clean your floors better, how to do your dishes. They'd have all kinds of stuff like that. Because it was expected, the terminology that had come into American culture was, women do housework. And housework means scrubbing floors, scrubbing toilets, scrubbing bathtubs, doing dishes, right? Isn't that the way we understood housework? And I don't know if that term came into our language through the way they interpreted or translated this word here, but I don't think that that's particularly what Paul means by housework here. It's easy for us to think that it's about that, but Let's see if you guys remember from other Bible studies, what's another usage of the word house in the New Testament other than just a physical building? What? That, that's possible. I don't think that that's what he's talking about here. What? What? No, no. I'm just saying the word house, just house, just the word house. Home versus house. And home involves family. And that's the way I understand it. In fact, because we have that. We're part of the household. He uses this word. We're part of the household of God. We're part of the family of God. And this word, I think, is very important because it's saying, you know, one of the things, one of the things that falls on the shoulder of women is that they're very, very important for doing work that makes the family family. And I honestly have to say, I think I benefited from this because my wife was really good about focusing on family when we were raising our girls. To the point that, and I've told you this before, that you know I'd had weeks that I had been working 40 hours doing work other places, putting doors and windows in for people and stuff, and then I come home in the evenings and I've got, I, back then I had six Bible studies a week that I'm doing on my own, and so I bring my books home and I sit over in my chair in the corner of the living room and I'm studying, I'm doing this stuff, and my wife is like, I really appreciate the fact that you need to study, and you need to study, but your girls are awake right now, we need to do, you need to do something. You need to take time with your daughters. <laughs> and there'd be times I'm like, ah. <laughs> seriously, there was times I was kind of like, oh, kids. <laughs> and she'd say, they're your daughters and they love you and they want some time with you. And you know what? I'll be real honest. I never regretted setting the books down and saying I can get back to those after the girls go to bed and doing something with the girls, playing games, playing Roar. <laughs> My girls love Friday nights. Almost every Friday night was Roar. Our house had that loop. Roar meant dad's like a monster. And I go, ah, and I chase him down the hall and get him screaming as loud as I can. Then you got to let them, you're going to get him, but you got to let him escape underneath you. And you turn around and you roar back to him. You do that until dad has a headache. And then you have to say, I need about a minute here to, <sighs> from roaring. My kids, but my kids love that kind of stuff. Doing stuff with them, doing what they wanted. And that's because of my wife. My wife encouraged me. I, I actually have worn earrings and necklaces because I played Pretty Pretty Princess, and I think I even won once. Because I had girls, I didn't have boys. And my wife encouraged me, you can sit out and play Pretty Pretty Princess with your little girls. And they loved that. They thought that was fun. But that goes back to the fact that my wife, I'm not trying to just butter her up today or anything like that. I'm just, I just she's the one I, I, I watch. But she was really good at focusing on developing family. 
And I learned, I'll be honest, I think I learned some things about family. Now, I, 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 my mom did a good job with family when I was growing up, but I, no, no offense to my mom, but I always kind of thought my, my wife did a little bit better job. That was just my opinion, watching this with my own kids, you know. Yeah. Oh, that's good. My mom's not on. <laughs> I'd have to answer for that one. No. <laughs> anyway, no. I, I was a mama's boy I, when I was growing up. I used to love to go in and sit and talk to my mom endlessly. You can ask her. But having said all of that, this is the, I think that this is really important for us to understand this when it's talking about housework. It's not talking about the dusting and the cleaning stuff first and foremost. It's really talking about the one that helps build family in the household. And you know why that's important? Because kids generally spent and spend more time with moms than with dads. Because dads normally worked outside of the home. They worked somewhere else. If they farmed, they were out in the field. If they were a merchant, they were out in the marketplace. And sometimes they took families with them and sometimes they didn't. And so kids... Candles. They were making candles. They were doing all this, and they were teaching your children how to do it too, because they just didn't do nothing. That's right. They had to keep an eye on them. They had to learn to work too. So. Yeah. And I always think, I always think it's something we don't appreciate, or I don't think maybe. I hope you women all appreciate this, but I think in our modern culture, when was the last time you made your own soap? Leslie's good illustration. You oh you did okay. Usually we go to the store right, and you look and you're going. Oh, Josh doesn't have the soap I want. Oh, I'll have to buy this one, you know, something like that. But you know what I'm talking about. You don't buy your soap at the store, right? You go to the store and buy it. You don't make it. In fact, I don't think most people, if you had to make your own soap, most of us would stink because we wouldn't know how to do it. We wouldn't even know where to begin. And if, let's put this way, if it comes to the point that we're trying to figure out how to make our own soap, I'm going to guess Google is down and that's not going to be a resource. Uh, so, but yeah. But I just think about that just eating. Just eating. Just think of how you go to the store and you buy stuff. You buy a can of stuff. You don't can your own food. Most people don't anymore. I mean, that's why people are selling these boxes of stuff that's delivered to you so you don't even have to go to the grocery store to get your veggies. They deliver them right to your door. And, oh, I'm saving money. And I'm thinking, how? <laughs> anyway, but you get the point. There was just a lot of work of living, a tremendous amount. I, I really, Peg and I have talked about this many times. I think a lot of women probably put in more work time than their husbands did just because of what it took to keep everything operating. Proverbs uh, the Proverbs 31 woman, which she was a hard-working woman. So but, so he could sit in the gates of the city and be honored by the other men as he discussed important affairs. You ever read that in Proverbs 31? That's the thing. He gets to take his chair, his stool, sit up in the gate of the city and discuss things because his wife has all these other affairs in order. Well, they weren't just Exactly, but they're discussing. They're discussing the matters and things that have to be taken care of, and they want. See, and they wanted that position, but you couldn't do that if you're having to do all these other things all the time. We're in a society that people work eight hours a day and they think they're abused. <laughs> Jerry's dad, for example, he said he worked part time. Well, how many hours did you work part time? Oh, from six in the morning till about eight at night. That was part time. So we have a, we have a very different idea of what, how things are to be. Because 
time. Yeah, it's just yes. So we have we we live in a very different society, but it's important I think for us to understand when he's talking about this idea of house workers when he's using this term. It's not it's not what we think. That was not the idea that was behind this term. There were other terms that they used in their culture for that kind of activity. This follows this term follows right on the heels of these other instructions about the proper attitude and all of these things that these women are that these younger women are supposed to be doing. Can you put this with that first or second Thessalonians that they're at home, they're not gadding about gossiping? Oh, over in over in uh, First Timothy First Timothy five. Yeah, when he's talking about the younger widows, he says those younger widows, the church doesn't take them on the roll to pay to pay their way, because then they learn to be idle, they learn to be lazy, and uh, and uh, they start causing other problems that he's dealing. So he says you don't you don't do that in that in that uh, context. That's what you're referring to, right? Okay. So then he goes on here in verse five. Let's move on to our next one here, and then it says, and then to be subject or in submission to their own husbands. And it's very important that it says here, my wife is always really keen to point this out when you're like over in Ephesians 5, and it says that the wives submit to their own husbands, their idios husbands, not just all men, but specifically their husbands that they're in submission to. And uh, I've just been working on this idea of submission because I'm, we're doing a Bible study in Ephesians, and so I've been working through these ideas of submission, that submission meant to be in an order under. But that order over in Ephesians has to do with the fact that the husband is the head. And the head does not mean, I'm the man of the house, the buck stops here, I'll tell you what we do. That is not what headship meant. And I've worked through headship recently, and Jim did this with us. Headship really had the idea of providing a supply and of care. So the husband functions as the head in the family, a head of the wife in particular, because he's the one that provides for her in the same way that it says that Christ provides. He's not just up there barking orders at the church, telling them what to do. He's providing for the care of the church. And it says that in Ephesians chapter 4. He's the one that makes sure that the things go through all the parts of the body to the other parts of the body that need it. This is what he's doing as head. And so when it says the wives to submit... Now, I always put it this way. The very next verses, well, let's go over and look at this. I, I didn't want to chase this down, but turn over to Ephesians 5. This is really fresh in my mind as I've been working through these verses for our study in Ephesians. <clears throat> but it says, in verse 21, Ephesians 5, 21, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Now, that subject, it looks like a verb, but it's a participle, and it's one of a series of participles that are the result of being filled. You're to be filled according to verse 18, and then that filling results in, verse 19, speaking. And then it results in singing and making melody in, in verse 19. And then in verse 20, it results in giving thanks. And lastly, verse 20 results in submitting. Those are all participles that are the result of being filled. So there's submission. And then he says, and wives, and notice if you have a New American Standard, to be subject or in italics because they're not part of the text. It's a verbalist statement saying, wives, here in verse 22, to their own husbands. In other words, there's a special area in which they're submitting. But he doesn't actually use the verb submit. They've added it in your modern English because apparently modern English readers can't follow this. As to the Lord, because the man is the 
head of the woman, meaning he's the one that is caring and supplying for her. And if she, he's caring and supplying, then she needs to come in order to enjoy that supply, to experience that supply and that care and that provision. But if she refuses that, I got it myself. I got it. I got it. I don't need the help. Then she misses out on the way God provides supply. It's the same way with the other members back up there in uh, verse, 20, verse 21. If you don't submit to others in the body of Christ by God's design, guess what? You're going to miss out. So Dwight might come by in the morning, come by. We're going to talk for a little while. We're going to sit in my office. And you know what? We don't just chit-chat about the weather and chit-chat about politics and things like that. There are times that he shares things that I'm like, well, he's not a pastor teacher. He's not my teacher. I'm not going to submit. If I did that, I would miss out on things that he shared and encouraged me with. The same thing with my wife. So in other words, there's a supply that Christ ministers to me through Dwight that I get to enjoy. And Dwight's not sitting there going, Tim, you need to do it this way. He's not doing that. He's sharing something with me that's designed to help me and encourage me. And so when we understand this idea of submission, we're putting this in perspective. And then I always think this next part is very important that when he gets done talking about that submission, he says in verse 25, and husbands, and here's an imperative verb now. This is when we actually get to our verb, husbands love. That's not a participle. Now that's an imperative. Husbands love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave or dedicated himself up for her. Point being is, if a husband is loving his wife like Christ loved the church, why wouldn't she submit to him? Because he's going to be doing for her what she needs. He's providing. He's taking care of these things. He's attending to the things that God's given him to tend to. But if, if in this context here, let's, let's put it this way. We, we can go back over there to Titus. I, I think when you go through Scripture, and I was looking through submission here, I do think that there's... For us, there would be a caveat in this because we're in a different situation. You don't submit as a believer, and this also is true of wives, to anybody that tells you to do something that is outside the will of God. Now, Abraham, this is what people do. They go, well, wait a second. Now, wait a second. Abraham told Sarah, when we go into this country, you're a beautiful woman. You're a looker. And so you know what? They're going to want to slit my throat to get you. So just tell them you're my sister. And she goes along with that. What is that? That's a lie. But keep in mind, did they have a law at that time that said thou shalt not lie? Had God given them the law? No. And in fact, you know, even in the law, he doesn't say thou shalt not lie. In the law, he says you shall not bear false witness against somebody. That's even a, that's, that's a, that's a lie but it's a specific kind of lie. You and I as believers are not supposed to lie. So, fast forward, we've got a man and a woman that sell a piece of property, and they're going to go, well, let's give this to the church. And you know what? And well, we should, Let's go read it. Let's go look at it. I want you to see this. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, because I really want you to think about what's going on here. This is, this, is, this is all new now for the church. This is a whole new thing going on. Verse 1, a certain man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. They came back 
and, and kept back the price of it, of, of it for himself with his wife's full knowledge, bringing a portion of it, he laid at the apostles' feet. And Peter said to Ananias, now he's talking to the husband, talks to the husband first. Why has Satan filled up your heart to lie? See, he takes advantage. I'm sure Satan is watching Ananias inspire, he can kind of, he's watching Ananias, and he's going, you know, when these other people have brought money and provided stuff to the church, he's looking at this, and he's going like, I like the attention that these guys get. I like the fact that other people are like, oh, that was very generous of you, Barnabas. You know, Paul's ends up being Paul's right-hand man. Barnabas, actually a Levite, sells a chunk of property and gives the, the proceeds to the church. Ananias is like, hmm, kind of like this, and people were very appreciative of that. So we're going to do this. And Satan fills his heart to lie, lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land. How does Satan fill his heart to do this? Well, he tempts him. He doesn't say exactly how. Did he shoot a, a dart, as it says in Scripture, into his thinking up here? He fills him up. In some way, he suggests, he suggests to Ananias, this would be a good thing. Sell it. Keep some of it for yourself. That's okay. And, but make the church think it's the whole thing. And while it remained, verse 4, unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, it was still under your control. Why is it that you have conceived in, in this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but you lied to God. The whole point was he didn't have to give any of it. And what he did give, he didn't have, he could have given the church and said, hey, we kept half of it for ourselves. We're going on a cruise. <laughs> and that would have been fine. But to come in there and give the implication, we're giving it all, that's the lie. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard it. Verse 6. Now, let's go back to verse 2 for a minute. I want you to see this. It says, he kept back, and that word, by the way, is the word pilfer or embezzle from the price, his wife being fully conscious of this. Our Bibles say full knowledge, but she has, she's fully conscious of what the husband's done says in verse 6, And the young men arose, covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. And there lapsed an interval about three hours, and the wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded, Tell me, whether you sold the land for such and such a price? And she says, Yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed? The two of you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord. See, they, she didn't have to do this. She didn't have to participate in this. It was wrong for her. She should have said, no, that was not the price. But she goes along with the lie and the whole point, and she ends up dying. But I want you to see this because I think that this is one of several places that we could try to demonstrate from the Word of God that husbands, if you ever have something that is questionable, that is outside the will of God, and you're foolish enough to pursue that thing, don't make your wife go along with you in it. <laughs> and wives, submitting to your husband does not mean you submit to doing something that is outside the will of God. Does it understand that? So if we go back over to Titus chapter 2, just I think it's important to do that because I've had people say, listen to people when you talk about submission, they're going, well, Sarah lied for Abraham. That was, but that's not the present dispensation. That's not the way we function today. Okay? So we need to understand there are some things that are different in with regard to this. In 
In what verse? Oh, did I skip over the word kind? I might have skipped over that in verse 5 when I was reading through this. Oh, yeah, there we go. And it's not the word kind. It's actually, this is back in Titus 2.5. I'm sorry. It's the word good. So she's sensible, pure, uh, workers, workers with regard to the household, and good. Good. Now that word good, agathos, means she's doing that which is beneficial. She actually seeks that which is beneficial. And I don't think just for herself, but I think for others. She's seeking what's beneficial for others. Because isn't that the nature of the Christian life? It's not all about me. In fact, it's chiefly about you. That's what Christ did. He laid down his life on behalf of other people. And we're called to lay down our lives on behalf of other people. Not to make them sacrifice for us, but us sacrifice for them. But then he goes on, and he says this important thing now. This is one of the reasons they're to be subject to their, to their own husbands. In order that the word of God should not be blasphemed or slandered or maligned. We're going to find something very similar with the slaves down below. But it is easy sometimes for us to, to, to forget that these, these Christians were a whole new thing in their culture. And for people to come along and say, hey, we are believers in this Jesus Christ. We are believers in this Jesus. And let's tell you about this Jesus. And now you're, now, oh, you're a believer in this Jesus. And man, alive. Uh, maybe you're in arranged marriage. Maybe, maybe the wife gets saved and the husband doesn't. And so she now doesn't want to submit to her husband. And the husband says, well, I want, I, I want us to do this. And the wife's going, no, I, I've got to go to Bible study today. I got to go to Bible study day. Do you know what? You don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. But one of my professors used to say this in seminary, make the comment. He says, I have never, and he, he had had different women in churches over the years that got saved and their husbands were unsaved. And their, their husbands never forbid them from going to church altogether. But sometimes they couldn't go on Sunday mornings because the husband liked to go fishing on Sunday mornings and he wanted his wife to go fishing with him. But he let her go for Thursday night or Wednesday night Bible study. He was okay with that. I'm just trying to say there are ways of doing things that are still in keeping with the word of God. It's real easy for us to think that everything's about Sunday morning. Sunday morning just happens to be the convenient time we get together. In fact, in a lot of parts of the world, in the history of the world, they didn't get together on Sunday mornings because you know what they did on Sunday mornings? They worked. They worked on Sunday mornings and they met in the evenings. <laughs> so when it's talking about this idea that the word of God could be blasphemed, all of a sudden this guy's going, I don't want your God. I tell you, you got this God, and you're, you're, you become an obnoxious, rebellious woman. Because you know, you don't want to have anything to do with anything I wanted to, used to do. And I'm not saying that he wants to do bad stuff. I'm just saying she just doesn't want to do this because it's all now about, and we can do that. We can become very selfish people even after we get saved. Because we're so excited about our Christianity, we just can't even see that anybody else would see it differently. And we have the potential. And I think that this is very important. We're going to see again when we get down there with the, with the slaves that this is also, that there's a similar idea. That this character, the things that we say about God, can be blasphemed. They can be blasphemed. Our doctrine about God can be blasphemed. It can be slandered by our conduct. Other people might look at you and go, man, that woman over there, 
She used to, boy, have everything in order, but all she's doing now is running around doing God stuff. But that God of theirs, that God of theirs, is that what that God expects them to, those wives just to abandon their families and do all, do you notice all those other things fell in first in this context before you get down to this idea? This is kind of like the, the end thing. You still contend, there's still things that are appropriate for you to continue to attend to in a family life, within that household. Now, kind of sound, I suppose, when we go with that. I don't think people here have problems with this, but this that study, this study today, can kind of sound in our culture today, kind of white male-oriented, patriarchal. But let's just put it this way. This was part of the way God set things down, and I believe that there is, it's important for us to understand and appreciate that there is a plan and design with regard to these things. Now, I add one little thing. I put this on the bottom, and for some reason I don't know, maybe it carried over from the last page, but it didn't. Um, that idea be filled is... In order for all of this, because and this was especially true when we understand this idea of submitting up above here, that that requires us, or women in particular, to be filled. You can submit. Can you submit in the wrong way? Yeah. Because you can submit to something that is outside the will of God, as we've already said. And God doesn't want you to do that. He wants you to submit in keeping with the filling of the Spirit. It's just not a blanket submission statement. It's a submission statement under the framework of what it means to have a saved frame of mind, which is related directly to being filled by the Spirit, and it's that kind of submission. And it's a submission that it ultimately all believers experience in our interactions with one another, but in particularly in this context that we've been looking at today with regard to the young women. I said maybe we'd hit the young men. I, I kind of didn't think we probably would because it's taken, it took us a week to go through the older men. It took us a week to go through the older women. I figured it would take us a week to get through this just to give us the time to stop and think about some of these different situations and relationships and how all of this plays out. Yeah. I trust that this is helpful for us to, as, as, Paul, as, as Paul is talking to Titus about, that these are things that need to be set in order. And I don't think in our modern 21st century culture that we're any different. Do we still need to have these things set in order in our churches? Yeah. Should we assume that everybody in the church kind of knows how life should look like for them? No, I, I don't assume that. Now, I, I assume a lot of you should know that here because a lot of you have sat under the teaching of the Word for, for many, many years. Some of you have sat under the teaching of the Word for many years before, longer than I've been here. But I know that if you've been around, we've been here, we've tried to communicate these things. And I think it's important for us to appreciate the fact that this still remains true, even today. Pastors need to be involved in trying to help set these things in order so you and I learn how to function the way God wants us to function in a manner that glorifies God ultimately. But, well, anyway, I was going to chase down another rabbit trail, but we won't do that. We'll stop there. <laughs> so, trust that this is an encouragement for us to stop and think about... Um, relationship, the younger women. We don't really have, we've got some young ladies, sorry, women here, but I think all the women here kind of almost are falling into the, uh, the almost the older category. We still have a couple of women here that still have kids at home, so some of this will apply to them in that regard. But uh, but we do have but we do have younger women or older women here that I hope you younger, older women are taking to heart 
the role that God's given you in the church in being of help to these to these younger women. And we trust God will bring some other families and other younger women to the church that they in time will need to be encouraged in these things. And uh, hope you appreciate God's plan and design for setting things in order in the local church. Our Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for your plan and design for how families operate, how churches operate. And uh, we just ask that you would continue to help us to take these things to heart and think about where we are in all of these things, the parts that you have us to play and uh, functioning together. And always to keep in mind that we are working together as members of the body of Christ. We thank you for that then. Amen.